Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Matthew chapter 6, verses 12 through 15. And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Wes, for sharing the word with us today. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to be here with you today. Good to uh, be able to share the word with you today. Um, yes, yeah, so we're going to be looking at the disciples' prayer again today. Uh, I know uh, Jamie addressed sort of the uh, first half of this uh, two weeks ago, uh, the Sunday before Easter, and uh, we're going to uh, address sort of the second half of it today. But uh, again, uh, we're going to be looking specifically at the verses that... Um, uh, that uh, Wes just read a moment ago, verses 12 to 15, uh, but uh, also doing just a little bit by way of review uh, to just sort of set the stage and lay the foundation uh, for looking at those specific verses. So from Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, I think one of the very first things that we learn is that prayer was never designed to be a spectator sport. In fact, if you look at your Bible, if you look back at verse 5 of chapter 6 of Matthew, Jesus said, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. In other words, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth as he talked about prayer is that when we pray, it's not designed to give off sort of spiritual vibes. It's not designed to uh, give off signals to other people about our spirituality. In fact, Jesus says in the very next verse, verse 6, when you pray, go to your room. When you pray, close the door. Get alone with your heavenly Father and talk to Him. In other words, pray privately. I think that's the very first element that Jesus wanted to get across as He teaches us about prayer is that we are to pray privately. Now, that doesn't mean we're to never pray in public. It doesn't mean that when Wes gets up here that he should not lead us in prayer doesn't mean we shouldn't pray with groups of people. There are many examples throughout the Bible of people praying together and people praying out loud and those things. But let's be honest, the bulk of our times of prayer are going to be one-in-one. They're designed to be one-on-one. That's how God designed it, and that's how Jesus wants it. So Jesus teaches us at the front end of this, uh, this instruction on prayer that we need to pray privately. Now, you might ask, well, why all the emphasis on privacy? There's probably a couple of reasons. Certainly one of the reasons would simply be a practical reason, and that is that privacy ensures a minimum of distractions. You know, Jesus knows how we work. He knows how our minds work, and He knows that we're easily distracted, and He knows that we need to sometimes be in private places so that we can talk to Him where there are no interruptions. That's what He wants from us. And I also think perhaps there's a personal reason. And that is that once we find kind of a private time and a private place to talk to God, 
that becomes a familiar place. It becomes a special place. Uh, perhaps maybe in some ways almost like the Garden of Gethsemane uh, became to Jesus. It's a holy place, a time where we meet with God personally, kind of like a, a couple that maybe has a favorite restaurant or a family that has a regular vacation spot. It's sort of a place that is full of good memories. It's a place that is full of happy memories and good times. And similarly, when we find a specific time and place of prayer over time, that becomes a special place. That becomes a place that we look forward to going to. And we grow to love that time and love that place because those are our times to talk to our Heavenly Father. And our Heavenly Father wants those times with us. And so that's why he starts off in verses 5 and 6 by telling us to find a quiet place and make it a familiar place where we meet with God regularly. So as Jesus sort of instructs us on prayer, the first thing he teaches us is that prayer needs to have a privacy component to it, that we are to pray privately. Jesus also teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to pray simply. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. I mean, you can't help but have a little sympathy and a little kind of bad feeling for the Gentiles in Jesus' day. Not only did they have all this sort of plethora or pantheon of Roman gods that they were supposed to worship, but because Greek culture was still quite dominant, they had this whole pantheon or, or plethora of Greek gods that they were called upon to worship. If you've ever studied Greek mythology or Roman mythology, you discover that Greek and Roman gods are not like the God of the Bible. They were angry gods. They were fickle gods. They were gods that held grudges. And so when you went to prayer, you just never really knew, you know, whose God was, what God was for you and which one was against you, who was going to listen to you today who wasn't going to listen to you today. So you had to kind of call out all kinds of phrases and try to get whatever God's attention you might be able to get. So you had to go through many words and many phrases, hoping that one God would listen to you, that one God would be happy with you, that one God would, you know, take your requests. Well, Jesus says, we don't do that. We don't play to a, a pantheon of gods. We don't play to a whole, pray to a whole group of gods. We pray to one God, and that God is our Heavenly Father. And our Heavenly Father knows what we need even before we ask Him. So we don't need to fall into habits of empty phrases and many words. We don't need a lot of spiritual cliches that may sound kind of spiritual and may sound kind of pious, but in reality, we just string them together and call it prayer. That's not what God wants. He just wants us to come to Him and to be authentic. He just wants us to come to him and be very personal with him, very sincere with him. He not only, want, not only wants us to pray privately, but he also wants us to pray simply. So pray privately, pray simply, and then as we actually come to the disciples' prayer or the Lord's prayer, he tells us that we need to pray intentionally. We need to pray intentionally. Jesus left us, his followers, with an amazing model, an amazing pattern that is both clear and intentional. He doesn't want us to complicate it. In fact, if you add up all the words that go into this prayer, it's just a handful of words. It's not that long. He doesn't want us to necessarily make it long. And as we look at what he teaches in verses 9 to 15, he basically tells us that when we pray, we're to focus on two things. First of all, we're to focus on our Heavenly Father. In verse 9 and 10, Jamie talked about this two weeks ago. We're to focus on his person, on his name, on his character, on his attributes, we're to focus on his rule. We're to focus on his will, his leadership, his directorship, his lordship over our lives. 
So we start off focusing on our Heavenly Father. Then after focusing on our Heavenly Father, He teaches us that we are to focus on our needs. We're to focus on our needs. And in verses 11 through 13, He basically gives us four requests that we are to make. Give us, forgive us, lead us, and deliver us. So this morning, we want to look at those requests. Specifically, we want to look at request number two, three, and four. But let's just highlight request number one quickly, again, because Jamie touched on this two weeks ago. Request number one is given in verse 11. And it simply reads, give us this day our daily bread. Now, daily bread means the specifics, the basic specifics for that day. Daily bread is is a symbol. It's a reminder of everything that we need for this day all that is on our schedule for this day, um, all, that, uh, all the relationships that we're going to intersect with this day, all of our responsibilities for this day. Uh, we are praying for provision for this day. So it's not just for bread. It's everything that goes into all the basics, all the ingredients, all the stuff of life this day. He wants us to pray for provision for this day. But an even larger principle is at stake here. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, reminds us, reminds us of that in James chapter 1 and verse 17, where James writes that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And the Apostle Paul is even a little more pungent in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, where he writes, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, you do not, if you then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, the scriptures teach us that God Himself is the ultimate source of all good. He's the ultimate source of every good, uh, food, uh, whether it's food or clothing or relationships or family or work or leisure or breath or intelligence or friendship, whatever. So in this opening request, give us this day our daily bread, it's not only a reminder that we are to be conscious of our day-to-day dependence upon God, but it's also a reminder of our day-to-day gratitude that we're to have because he does provide us with our daily bread, our daily needs this day and every day. So request number one is simply give us this day our daily bread. Now we come to verse 12, verse 14, and verse 15, and we find the second request. And this is kind of where we want to plant ourselves today. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Then he continues in this thought in verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So some sobering things in these couple of verses. And here in verse 12, sin is pictured as a debt. And that's probably a good way to picture sin because sin does incur a debt that must be paid. It does incur incur a debt that we must be released from. It does incur, incur a debt that we must be forgiven of. And if then someone owes us such a debt and we fail to release him by forgiving him, then our own debts before our Father will not be forgiven by him and we will not be released. That's kind of, in essence, what these couple of three verses are telling us. And we look at that, and we kind of sit back and say, wow, that's serious stuff. That's complicated stuff. That's not easy stuff. I mean, is Jesus just simply giving us some sort of a kind of tit for tat here when, uh, you know, if and only if I forgive Wes, 
then and only then will God forgive me? I mean, is that the idea here? Is that what he's doing? I mean, what are these very explicit conditions in verse 12, 14, and 15? What do they mean? Well, I want you to take your Bible and turn over to Matthew chapter 18. Because in Matthew chapter 18, we have a parable that Jesus told. It's simply called the parable of the unforgiving servant. And I think this parable sheds some light on what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 6, verses 12, 14, and 15. So I want you to turn to Matthew 18, and we're going to read through these verses, all right? We're not going to have them all up on the screen, so you can follow along with them in your Bible. And we're going to make a few comments as we go through these verses. But Matthew 18, verse 23, Jesus said, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. When we use the word talent in our English language, we, we use it, usually use it to refer to a skill and something that somebody's good at. Like somebody might look at us and say, man, you know, you've got a green thumb. You've just got a talent for flowers and gardening and vegetables and landscaping. You just got a knack for that. You just have a talent for that. Or we might look up here on the stage on the platform someday and we see Wes or, or we see others that are participating in worship team and they're, they're using their voices or musical instruments. And we say, we look at them and say, wow, you have a talent, you know, for playing the piano or the keyboard. You have a talent for the guitar, a talent for singing, a talent for the cajon. When we hear the word talent, we tend to think of it as an ability, something that somebody is good at. But that's not how it was used. That's not how the word was used in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, the word talent referred to a sum of currency. It referred to a very, very, very large sum of currency. In fact, a talent in Jesus' day was equal to 20 years of income. One talent, 20 years of income. So this servant owed the king 10,000 talents. So he owed him 200,000 years of income. Now, if you just did the math and just, say, took $50,000 a year, that means that this servant owed the king $10 billion. Not $10 million, $10 billion. And the people in Jesus' day, when they heard him speak this parable, that's how they would have understood that. They would have understood that as a ginormous debt that could never be repaid, a $10 billion debt. Look at verse 25. And since he could not pay, well, obviously he couldn't pay that debt, his master ordered him to be sold. And his wife and his children and all that they had, then payment would be made. At least the king would get a little something out of this, get a, a few dollars back on the debt. Verse 26, so the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. He could never pay him everything. He could never pay back that debt. So what did the king do? Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That was really the only option, was it not? I mean, the only option, he could never pay the debt. It was just too ginormous, too big, too huge. He could never pay it back. So the king, out of his grace and mercy, forgave him, released him of the $10 billion debt. Now look at verse 28. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Now, again, this is a word that we don't typically use, right? It was a word for a denomination of currency in Jesus' day. 
When you walk into Lowe's or the hardware store, you shop at Myers or, or Hardings or somewhere else, and you get to the checkout counter, they don't ask you to give them 12 denarii, do they? But in Jesus' day, it was a common form of currency. In fact, in Jesus' day, most people, most workers were day laborers. So what they would do is they would go out and get hired for the day, they'd work for the day, and at the end of the day, they would get paid. And the common wage in Jesus' day for a day of work was a denarii. So a denarii equaled one day's wage. So this second servant owed a debt of 100 days of income. Again, if we just simply use $50,000 a year, that would roughly equal to one-third of a year's income or $17,000. So this servant owed a debt of $17,000. Not a small debt, but certainly a debt that over time could be paid for, could be, could be taken care of. But look what happened. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused, and he went and he put him into prison that he should pay the debt. I'm not sure how you pay a debt when you're in prison. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you $10 billion because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant who owed you just $17,000? Why didn't you have mercy on him as I had mercy on you? Verse 34, and in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which he would never be able to pay, $10 billion. Now, here's the punchline. Here's the point, verse 35. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Again, sounds a lot like what Jesus was talking about back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, 14, and 15. And if we turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, and we turn back to chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, what did Jesus say in verse 7? In verse 7 of chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. I think we could say, blessed are the forgiving, for they are the ones that shall be forgiven. In fact, James tells us in James chapter 2 and verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. So the point of all of these passages, Matthew 6, Matthew 28, Matthew 5, James chapter 2, the point of all of these texts is the same. There is no forgiveness for the one who does not forgive. Now, that's a sobering statement, but how could it be otherwise? Our unforgiving spirit bears strong witness to the fact that we have never admitted or repented of our own sin. So, there's no doubt that Jesus meant exactly what he said when he said in verse 12 of chapter 6, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Kent Hughes, who was the teaching pastor for many years at Wheaton uh, at uh, College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, he wrote this about this verse. He says this, If we're not thoughtful about this, the Lord's prayer can then become nothing more than a self-inflicting curse, a prayer of doom instead of a prayer of blessing. For if we pray, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors with an unforgiving heart, we are asking God not to forgive us, we're demonstrate, we demonstrate whether we have been forgiven by whether 
or not, we will forgive. So if I refuse to forgive, there is only one reason. I'm outside of grace, and I am myself unforgiven. These are hard words, but they are graciously hard, words especially needed to be heard. Again, quite sobering. And the point is this. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we can and we will forgive. We may struggle at times with giving that forgiveness. We may wrestle at times with lingering feelings of of bitterness and lingering feelings of, of anger. The offense may have been so recent that we're still in the shock of it. There are, real, there are real issues that we must wrestle through, not just the ones I just mentioned, but others as well. But it is the one who has no desire to forgive, the one who is, is unwilling to forgive. That is the one whom Jesus says is in soul danger. That's why Jesus included this in the Lord's Prayer, because this is critical stuff. This is soul stuff. This is eternal stuff. This is, this is rock bottom, righteousness kind of stuff. And he wants us to deal with these kind of things because he knows how serious they are. So here's maybe a question or two that we should ask ourselves. Is forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, is that a curse upon us or is it a blessing upon us? Are our most precious possessions, are the things that we cling to so closely, are they our grudges against others? Do we pride ourselves on the fact that we never forgive? If so, then chances are good that we are not truly followers of Christ. I mean, how good of God to put it this way? This does not require any elaborate reasoning process to determine whether or not we know him. We don't need to know Greek. We don't need to know Hebrew. You know, we don't have any special knowledge. All this requires is basic honesty. Does the state of my heart regarding forgiveness indicate my experience of forgiveness? Does the state of my heart regarding forgiveness indicate my experience of grace or not? A serious question, a sobering question, a tough question. That's why Jesus included this in this prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, because Jesus knows how important this is and how critical this is to our salvation and our relationships with others. This petition, I think it also helps us monitor our spiritual health. We all have the unhealthy tendency to be more conscious of the wrongs done to us than of the wrongs that we have done to others. When others are hurt by us, we tend to credit it to their oversensitive feelings. We look at them and say, get over it. It's not that big of a deal. Why are you making such a big deal of it? But when others hurt us, when we're wronged, we tend to exaggerate our own hurt and the evil of the offender. I like the way C.S. Lewis put it. He wrote this, In our own case, we accept excuses too easily. In other people's, we do not accept them easily enough. As regards my own sins, it it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are not really as good as I think. As regards other men's sins against me, it is a safe bet, though not a certainty, that the excuses are better than I think. Serious business. Serious business. So our quickness to take offense and our reticence to forgive can affect us in many, many ways. And again, that's why Jesus included this in this prayer because it's so important. An unforgiving spirit can bring isolation into our lives and relationships. 
and a compounding of our bitterness. It can show up in self-pity, leading at times to depression as the offended self turns inward. We can become more fault-finding, more hurt, more unforgiving, then more depressed and more emotionally and spiritually and physically unhealthy. All those things can be the byproduct of an unforgiving heart. Again, that's why Jesus is addressing this here, because it's so important. On the other hand, the health benefits, the spiritual health benefits, the physical and emotional health benefits of of a forgiving spirit are actually incalculable. And the chief benefit is this. We are never closer to God. We are never more like God than when we forgive. When we forgive, we are like God the Father and like God the Son who prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. You know, there's an old phrase and that old phrase begins like this, to err is human. And that's a true statement, is it not? I mean, erring is just part of being human. It's part of who we are. But the last part of that little saying is this, to forgive is divine, and so it is. And so we are never healthier than when we forgive. Why? Because we are acting like God. We are modeling God. We are following God. We're doing that. So again, the question is, are we healthy, forgiving people? We need to be. We need to be healthy, forgiving people for the health of our own souls. We need to be forgiving people for the health of our church, for the health of our relationships and our families. We need to be forgiving people for the sake of the world because the world has yet to discover what Jesus Christ is really like, but it can and it will when you and I forgive. Why? Because to forgive is divine. To forgive is divine. So I need to ask myself, we need to ask ourselves, Christ in this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, He wants us to ask ourselves regularly, do I need to forgive my spouse? Do I need to forgive my my siblings? Do I need to forgive my parents? Do I need to forgive my children? Have Have I forgiven that employer or that neighbor or that church member who wronged me? Do I have a grudge against my last church or its pastors or elders? The Apostle Paul wrote, In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. How are we to forgive one another? What is the measurement? What is the standard? Just as in Christ God forgave us. So if this is this important to our souls, if it's this important to our spiritual health, our physical health, our emotional health, then I think a critical question that we need to ask is this. We need to ask the question as we think through this issue of forgiveness and how prayer fits in, how forgiveness fits into prayer, the question we need to ask is, what is biblical forgiveness? Not what is secular forgiveness. Not is what the, the cultural vibe on forgiveness. No, what is biblical forgiveness? How does, how does biblical forgiveness work? What does biblical forgiveness look like? Well, folks, there are three authors that have helped me considerably on this issue. And I just want to introduce you to those authors. Some of them you'll know, some of them perhaps not. But I want to introduce these to you. And if you want to do some more study on this topic, I would encourage you to get a hold of these books. The first author is a gentleman by the name of Wendell Miller. Several years ago, he wrote a book called Forgiveness, the Power and the Puzzles. This is an excellent book 
on looking at the critical passages in Old and New Testament that deal with this issue of forgiveness and trying to sort out the puzzles that come with that. I would invite you to get a hold of a copy of that book, Wendell Miller, Forgiveness, the Power and the Puzzles. Another book that has really been very helpful for me is a book written by Jay Adams, just simply entitled, From Forgiven to Forgiving, Learning to Forgive One Another God's Way. Isn't that what we want, right? I want to learn how to forgive the way God wants me to forgive. But I don't fully understand that. I hear so many things about forgiveness in the culture, in the world around us, in society, but is that God's way to forgive? Jay Adams has written an excellent book called From Forgiving, From Forgiven to Forgiving. And then perhaps an author that we're a little more familiar with because Jamie often, often references this author is uh, Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp wrote a book several years ago called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. And if you work through this book, throughout this book, uh, Tripp continually goes back to this issue of biblical forgiveness and how critical that is for people in need of change to help other people in need of change. So again, I would invite you, I would encourage you to grab those books. They all do an excellent job of looking at the biblical information and addressing biblical forgiveness, all right, which is so very important. And the things that we want to talk about over the next few minutes about biblical forgiveness, I am very much indebted to these three authors. And much of what I'm going to share with you, and we're only going to cover it in a few minutes, is what I have learned from these authors as they have looked at God's Word and tried to help us understand God's Word. So I want to give credit where credit is due because they have helped me immensely on this. Now, these three authors, all three of them write about the fact that biblical forgiveness is, has first a vertical component and then a horizontal component, a judicial element and then a relational element. I like the way Paul Tripp puts it. He states it this way. Forgiveness is a vertical commitment that is followed by a horizontal transaction in that order. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is a vertical commitment that is followed by a horizontal transaction in that order. So let's take just a few moments, and again, this is critical. Remember, it's critical to our souls. It's critical to what Jesus Christ is talking about in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. How do I do that? All right? It's critical to us understanding this. So let's look at the two parts. Briefly, let's look at the two parts of biblical forgiveness. Biblical forgiveness, part one. When we are wronged in word or action, our response must be shaped by an immediate commitment that we make before God, a vertical commitment. Forgiveness begins by our giving the offense to the Lord. Think of it this way. Biblical forgiveness always begins by dealing with the courtroom aspect of forgiveness. It always begins by dealing with the judicial aspect of forgiveness, the justice and penalty aspect of forgiveness. And when somebody sins against us, we don't want to just let it sit there. We just want to let it brew. We just don't want to let it percolate. We just don't want to let it kind of rot inside of us. We need an immediate commitment to go to God and say, God, when it comes to the courtroom aspects of forgiveness, when it comes to judicial aspects, the justice part of forgiveness, the penalty phase of forgiveness, I'm turning that over to you. I'm making a commitment that's yours because you're perfect at justice. You're perfect at holiness. 
You always get it right. You never miss a bit. So I'm going to release all of that to you. I'm going to give the whole courtroom thing, the judicial thing, the justice thing, the penalty thing. I'm giving that to you. I'm not going to hang on to that. You got that. You get it. You'll do it perfectly. I trust you with that. Now, this doesn't mean that we act as if something wrong is right. It means that we don't carry the wrong with us. That's bitterness. And we don't treat the other in light of that wrong. That's condemnation. We, commit, we, we make a commitment to respond with the same grace that we have been given. So in releasing all that penalty phase of forgiveness to God, I don't have to carry that around. That's not my job. That's his job. And he's really, really good at his job. He does his job perfectly. I can trust him with all of that. So I don't have to carry that with me. I can actually respond with the grace, the same grace that I've received. Again, this doesn't mean that we eat the offense. It doesn't mean that we act as though nothing happened. It doesn't mean that we pretend that we weren't affected or offended or hurt. In fact, the Bible actually calls the one who has been sinned against to go to the person who committed the offense and confront him or her with that offense. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, the Bible teaches, if your brother sins against you, and I think we could also read into that, if your sister sins against you, go and tell him or go and tell her his fault. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now, the reason we start with giving the offense, the judicial aspect of the offense to God, is so that when we come to the offender, we can do it in the right attitude, not in bitterness, but in grace. And we can do it with the right goal, not condemnation, but reconciliation. Vertical forgiveness clears our heart of the baggage of bitterness and condemnation because we've turned the whole judicial aspect of it over to God. Now we can face our offender in a way that is kind, patient, loving, humble, encouraging. Not easy, but doable. So the first part of forgiveness is judicial. That is, we entrust the offense to God who alone is able to judge. What about the second part of biblical forgiveness? The second part of biblical forgiveness is this. It is relational. It is horizontal. It is, as these authors describe it, a transaction of grace between the person who has been offended and the person who has committed the offense. This is relational, right? If the, if the first part is the courtroom aspect of forgiveness, this is the living room aspect of forgiveness. This is the relational. This is the reconciliational, right, part of forgiveness. This is the restorational of, of relationship part of forgiveness, all right? Now, understand this, and this is important. We cannot relationally forgive someone who has not asked for forgiveness. Not talking about the judicial aspect, talking about the relational aspect. In Luke chapter 17 and verse 3, Jesus is talking about the relational aspect of forgiveness, and he says this, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Folks, this is why we go to the offender. We go as God's instrument with the hope that their eyes will be opened, with the hope that their heart will be grieved, and that they will respond by confessing their sin and asking for our forgiveness, which we're ready to give because we're no longer harboring the bitterness. We're no longer harboring the condemnation. Or in our hearts, we've given that to God. So when it comes to the living room, the relational, the restorational, the reconciliational aspect of forgiveness, 
The person has to be willing to say, I'm sorry. They have to be willing to ask for our forgiveness. So we recognize that often this part of forgiveness is a process, not an event. We may find ourselves returning to old bitter thoughts. We may find ourselves getting angry at times. We may find ourselves treating the person judgmentally, even though we had committed not to do that. And when we do that, we need to confess that to God. We maybe even need to confess that to that person. We recognize that forgiveness is a process and not an event. It may be that the one who committed the offense is having a hard time seeing that offense, having a hard time owning what he or she has done. So we may have to go to them more than once. And our purpose is not to badger them into confession. It is to love them into grace. But once again, we cannot, God does not call us to forgive someone in the relational, restorational, reconciliational sense of what biblical forgiveness means until he or she has asked for forgiveness, has asked for forgiveness. So what we come to understand, and again, I've just touched on this very briefly, and these authors say so much more, and they cover it so much better than I do, but forgiveness is both an investment in our relationship with God and an investment in our relationship with others. That investment is going to require humility and compassion and trust and self-control, But maybe most importantly, that forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, requires remembering, not forgetting. Think about that for a moment. Remembering. When we are filled with the grief of our own sin, when we are filled with gratitude for the amazing forgiveness that we have been given, then we will find joy in giving others the same thing that we have received because we know how amazing it is and we want them to experience the same amazing grace. Again, Paul Tripp says it this way, and listen to this first phrase of this quote. Perhaps a lifestyle of unforgiveness is actually rooted in the sin of forgetfulness. Think about that for a moment. That seems to go counter to what our culture says about forgiveness. Let me read it again. Perhaps a lifestyle of unforgiveness is actually rooted in the sin of of forgetfulness. We forget that there is not a day in our lives that we do not need to be forgiven. We forget that we will never graduate from our need for grace. We forget that we have been loved with a love we could never earn, never achieve, never deserve. We forget that God never mocks our weakness, never finds joy in throwing our failures in our face, never threatens to turn his back on us, never makes us buy our way back into his favor. He goes on to write, when we remember, when we carry with us a deep appreciation for the grace we have been given, we will have a heart that is ready to forgive. This doesn't mean that the process will be comfortable. doesn't mean that the process will be easy, but it will mean that we can approach that needy person remembering that we are just as in need of what we are about to give him or her. Remembering a critical part of biblical forgiveness. And then Jay Adams adds this. He says, he writes, forgiveness means no longer continuing to dwell on the sin that was forgiven. Forgiveness is the promise not to raise the issue again to the offender once forgiven, once asked for forgiveness, to the offender, to others, to oneself. That is the essence of granting forgiveness. When one sincerely avoids mentioning the offense to his brother, 
when he refuses to discuss it with anyone else, and when he puts it out of his own mind by declining to think and dwell on it in resentment or self-pity. When that happens, the feelings of forgiveness soon will accompany the promise and commitment. So from a biblical standpoint, the only part of forgetfulness that goes into this is that I just don't bring it up again. Once the relationship is restored, I don't bring it up again to the person. I don't bring it up to others. I don't keep bringing it up to myself. I separate that. Biblical forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Critical to our relationship with the Lord. Critical to our spiritual health. Important information for us to understand. Not easy stuff to do. Some of the hurts that we have received are ginormous hurts. Some of the things that have been directed our way are, are difficult things and hard things and, 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 and life-impacting things. And Jesus knows that and he understands that. But he wants us to get to that place so that we can experience all that he has designed for us and all that he wants for us. And then we come to verse 13 of Matthew 6. And in verse 13, it simply reads, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Two requests here in verse 13. But these two requests, I think, should actually be understood as two aspects of one request. In other words, the sinner whose evil in the past has been forgiven and who forgives others, verse 12, now longs to be delivered and to see others delivered from sin's tyranny in the future, verse 13, that's how they go together. Now, to be honest with you, at first glance, this request, and lead us not into into temptation, is kind of a very, very strange request, is it not? I mean, why should I have to ask my heavenly Father not to lead me into temptation? I mean, that seems like a given, doesn't it? Doesn't seem like I should have to go to God every day and say, hey, God, just want to check this out today. I want to make sure we're good with this. Don't lead me into temptation today, God. You know, I know where this is going. I don't want to go there. Is that what it's saying? Is that what's happening here? I mean, to ask God to keep us out of temptation would be understandable. But to ask him that he not lead us into temptation? I mean, how could he do that? I mean, if temptation is a solicitation to evil, how could a holy God solicit us to evil? How could that be? How could that happen? James writes in James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What is James saying? What does the Bible say? The Bible is saying that clearly God cannot tempt anyone. Holiness never solicits evil. It never solicits evil. So what is Christ talking about here? I mean, much has been said about verse 13. Much has been written about this request. But I believe that the real explanation of this puzzling phrase is actually simpler than a lot of the proposed solutions that we've heard. I think this is actually a simple figure of speech which expresses something by negating the opposite. Let me give you a couple of illustrations of that. We use the phrase, not many, right? We all use that phrase, right? All the time, not many. What does not many mean? It means few. We say not many people were at the game. What do we mean? We mean that 
few people were at the game. By adding a negative to many, the opposite is meant. Jesus did the same thing in John chapter 6 and verse 37. I think that verse will go, go up on the screen. But in John 6, 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So by adding a negative to cast out, I will never cast out, the opposite is meant. Jesus meant, I will certainly keep all who come to me. I will never cast them out. Well, I think it appears to me that the lead us not into temptation is just like these common examples. Adding a negative not to into temptation is actually generating the opposite. This is what Jesus meant. He meant lead us away from temptation, lead us into righteousness. And that fits perfectly with the second part of the petition because then we'll be delivered from the evil one. So when we pray this prayer, lead us not into temptation, we're not saying, God, I know you want to lead me into temptation. No, we're basically praying, I know you don't want to lead me into temptation. You want to lead me into righteousness. You want to lead me away from temptation, away from the evil one to be delivered from him. So this third and fourth request found in verse 13 is a hefty reminder that just as we ought consciously to depend on God for our physical needs, verse 11, and for our forgiveness and release from our spiritual indebtedness, verse 12, so ought we as well to depend on him for our spiritual victory. And folks, isn't that true? I mean, as we grow in holy living, we sense more and more our own inherent moral weakness. And we recognize that whatever moral virtue we possess, we only, that only flourishes in our lives as a result of the fruit of the Spirit. More and more we recognize the deceptive subtleties of our own hearts. More and more we recognize the malicious cunning of the evil one. And we fervently pray to our Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but away from it and deliver us from the evil one. So what is Jesus teaching us in the Lord's Prayer? He's teaching us this. He's giving us a model for prayer. It's not giving us an incantation. It's a pattern, a pattern with specific elements, specific components to help us keep prayer unhypocritical. And if that is our heart's desire, then we only need to remember three elements. He didn't want to make it hard. He simply reminds us. He simply teaches us Pray privately, find a private place, and get alone with God regularly. Pray simply. Length does not equal strength when it comes to prayer. And then pray intentionally. Focus first on our Heavenly Father and then on our needs for this day. Give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this morning we, um, we want to express our gratitude and our thanksgiving for the content of this prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you were willing to address, uh, to, to teach us on issues that we need to address, serious issues that we need to, to focus on. This whole issue of, of forgive, being forgiven and forgiving is so critical to our spiritual well-being, so critical to our testimony, so critical to our relationships, so critical to our health and well-being, that you didn't bypass it. Father, we admit that issues related to forgiveness and forgiving are tough issues. Lord, what we've touched on this morning basically scratches the surface of all that your word has to say on this topic. But Father, we're thankful that you 
confront us with the hard issues and the hard questions. And we need to go to you, Lord, with, with hearts that are open and willing to say, Lord, have I really forgiven my spouse? Have I really forgiven that person, that individual, that group, that situation, that thing? So, Father, we thank you for, for doing this for us and giving this to us. And we thank you, Father, for reminding us that when it comes to temptation, that uh, you're not in the business of leading us into it. You're in the business of leading us toward righteousness. And we can come to you each day, Lord, claiming that, calling out for that, knowing that you want to deliver us from the evil one, Lord, knowing that the strength to do that does not come from our own hearts, doesn't come from our own self-wills. It comes from your grace. It comes from your faithfulness. It comes from your goodness. So, Father, as we conclude this little study two weeks ago with Jamie and today with myself of the Lord's Prayer, Father, help us this week to take with us what we have learned. Father, help us to find those times this week when we can pray privately. And then just pray simply, just honestly, just with integrity, just talking to our Father. And then to pray intentionally, to take time to focus on you, who you are, and all that you do. And then to focus on our daily needs, our daily needs, our daily needs of spiritual victory, our daily needs of forgiveness and to forgive others and our daily needs to express to you our dependence and gratitude for our daily bread. We thank you for this. In Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.